0: Ciao, and welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast, a dialogue about how space technology and exploration are transforming our solar system. Dr. Barth, welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. We're delighted to you know, finally touch base with you uh, and, and, and have you
1: here today. And um, whereabouts are you calling in from? I'm from the University of Toronto. So I'm calling from University of Toronto. remember reading
0: about uh, SuperBit and, uh, and and the missions several months ago. Uh, we'd, we'd love to hear more about this, this balloon-borne SuperBit telescope you and your team are pioneering.
1: Yeah, sure. What would you like to know? Should I just give you an overview of what the whole story is? Yeah, something like that. Sure. I do astrophysics experiments um, where we're trying to look at, you know, stuff in space. And if you do, if you're trying to look at stuff in space from the ground, you're obviously looking through the atmosphere. And the atmosphere can be a challenge for imaging. In some wavelengths or some colors of light, including colors light your eyes can't see, the atmosphere just straight up absorbs all the light coming through it. So like in the far infrared the atmosphere is basically opaque. You can't see anything. Um, at some wavelengths, uh, the atmosphere doesn't so much absorb the light, although it does somewhat, but it will also distort it where the you know, light gets bent by temperature and pressure gradients in the atmosphere. I don't know if you've ever seen a, um, like a mirage, like, you know, hot air coming off a road and the, the person in the distance is all kind of wobbly. Like they, they like to do those in some, some cool movie shots, right? So you have that mirage thing going on, you see. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yes. Yeah. So the same thing happens when you look straight up at a star. You just can't see it with your naked eye very well. Well, you can a little bit. You see those stars kind of twinkle. But when you look at a star through a telescope, you see this mirage effect happening, and the image is just all just dancing around, which makes it really hard to take high-resolution images of anything in space from the ground. So the solution to both these problems, you know, working the far infrared where the atmosphere absorbs the light, or working invisible where the atmosphere distorts the light, is to get out of the atmosphere. The obvious way to do that, I mean obvious-ish, is to build a satellite. Um, so you have something like the Hubble Space Telescope, which operates in orbit. Um, there's no air, so there's none of this distortion happening, so it gets a, you can get a much higher resolution image. The resolution of a telescope in space is limited by the quality of the optics and the size of the telescope. Um, so Hubble is a two and a half meter telescope, it can make very high resolution images. So less than, we um, would say less than 100 milli arc seconds, which is an interesting unit. Uh, how do we do this? Um, you have, you know what a degree is, a degree of angle, There's, you know, 90 degrees is like that. Um, You can't see my hands because we're not on video. Um, The moon is about a half a degree on the sky. So that's how big the moon is, about a half degree to your eyes. Okay, um, then a fraction of a degree, the units we use is a a arc minute. So there's 60 arc minutes in a degree. One arc minute is about the resolution of your eyes. Um, And then you can divide arc minutes down into arc seconds. There's 60 arc seconds in an arc minute one arc second is about the highest resolution you can see from, you can get from the ground. I mean, you can get a little bit better than that, but that's kind of a good rule of thumb, a good telescope on a good site, on a good night, maybe you can get one arc second resolution. And then, um, so Hubble Space Telescope can get less than 0.1 arc seconds resolution. So very, very, very high resolution. That's because it's in, it's in orbit. Now, obviously, putting a spacecraft in orbit is really, really expensive. And um, so it might be nice to be able to get something out of the atmosphere, but not in orbit. So it turns out that um, they've developed these high altitude stratospheric balloons. So these are balloons that are, when they're fully inflated, maybe between you know 10 and 40 million Cubic feet of volume, um, so sort of like maybe the balloon when it's fully inflated, maybe something something in the order of hundred meters in diameter. These are enormous balloons, and they can take your a payload of you know up to maybe four tons to an altitude of um, thirty-five or forty kilometers, and that is outside of. That's above you know ninety nine and a half percent of the atmosphere, so the effect of the atmosphere is two hundred times less than it is on the ground on order, and for you know for visible light imaging that gets you to the point where the atmosphere just doesn't matter in terms for your telescope's ability to take high resolution pictures. So for being on a balloon can be almost as good as being on a satellite, but a lot cheaper, which is great. Now, the downside of being on a balloon is that you only have a flight for as long as the balloon flies. You can't fly a balloon for, for decades. So the way that NASA managed to get flights for more than a day for um, many, uh, many decades, was to launch from Antarctica. So I've done a a number of launches from Antarctica. In Antarctica in the Austral summer, so maybe in December, there's no sunset. And so you launch the balloon and it can just stay up for days and weeks. The longest flight from Antarctica was something like 50 days, 56 days, something like that. So you 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 can fly very long flights from Antarctica in the Austral summer where it's constant daylight. The problem there, and that's great for like a millimeter experiment, like Boomerang, a experiment we did back in the late 90s, or like BLAST, um, a submillimeter experiment looking at star formation that we flew up in like the most recent flight was just a few years ago. These can stay up for weeks. And the fact that there's daylight doesn't really matter because as long as you're not looking at the sun, your telescope, the atmosphere isn't scattering millimeter or submillimeter light. And so it's, it's fine. But if you want to do visible light or near ultraviolet light, You can't do it in the daytime because the atmosphere is scattering too much sunlight. So you need nights. So the question is, how do you go about flying for weeks, an experiment that needs to operate at night? So the trick comes down to that point where I mentioned the sun rises and shines in the balloon and the gas in the balloon expands. And you have to vent it out the bottom. Um, starting, well, it's been about 20 years. NASA has been working on building what's called a superpressure balloon, a balloon where they can keep that valve closed through sunrise and the balloon becomes overpressured but doesn't pop. And they've had out of three major test flights where they have day night cycles, um, the longest flight of those test flights was 45 days, one was 35 days, which is pretty good. Their goal, of course, is to get up to months. Um, And so, we've been developed, once it looked like um, NASA was actually going to manage to get these super pressure balloon flights working, where you actually have um, the ability to fly days and weeks, we decided it made a lot of sense to try and build a visible light telescope. So, we've been working on Superbit, which is basically a visible light telescope that can fly on a balloon, above all the atmosphere, so you get that diffraction-limited, extremely high-resolution imaging. Um, but because it's on a super pressure balloon, you can fly for uh, weeks or hopefully months. So that's the basic idea. Now, SuperBet, originally, BET stood for balloon-borne imaging testbed. We wanted to learn how to do it because, well, people hadn't been trying to do it because there wasn't much point. We only had one night. Um, uh, it, But Superbit by itself is not as good as Hubble. Hubble's Hubble's better, it's bigger. We're a half meter telescope. Hubble's Hubble's a two and a half meter telescope. I mean, camera technology has come a long way. So we have a 69 megapixel camera with extremely low read noise and very good quantum efficiency and very low dark current. Those are all terms that tell you it's a great camera. Um, So our camera is much better than what's flown on Hubble. But nonetheless, our mirror is so much smaller. We end up being interesting with respect to Hubble, but not, not better than Hubble by any, really close. It's, it's a pretty great experiment. Um, but its real purpose is to develop a next generation experiment, um, which will be a one and a half meter telescope with an even better camera. And we expect gigabit, which we're calling it, um, unless you want to donate money to it, and then we can call it whatever you want. Um, uh, the gigabit um, should should be, you know, fifty times more sensitive than Hubble, or just you know, fifty times better light gathering capability at a very similar resolution to what Hubble can do. So that's our medium term goal. So we've we've gotten bit working. We were able to demonstrate that yes, we can get zero point um, two five uh, arc second imaging um, from a balloon. That's we want to go to another factor of three better with, with gigabit? Um, and so now we're going to try and actually do one of these super pressure balloon flights with NASA to demonstrate the whole thing and actually try and learn a whole pile about um, this just distribution of dark matter in galaxy clusters as a really awesome uh, outcome of a test flight, which actually is testing something that's so, so awesome that's actually a great science flight. So there, there's kind of my story. <laughs> What in one big monologue. Yes, lots we'll to take <laughs> in. Um, yeah, so you can go back and bounce me off anything you want to, me to cover again, for sure. Okay. So
0: for some, uh, some clarity. Um, yeah. So you flew at
1: forty kilometer altitude with thirty-five to forty. It depends on the on the on the on the balloon and the payload. Um, the super pressure balloons are a bit lower. They're more toward the thirty-five. Thirty to 35 kilometer altitude the balloons are stronger and therefore they're a bit heavier so they can't go quite as high but you know they go it's pretty good um but it's still like plenty high enough for the visible light telescopes to not care
0: okay yes um and the balloon was the size of a football stadium and football field not
1: the stadium itself it's about 100 meters okay yeah stadium's awfully big 100 meters is awfully big but And the SuperBit was capable of flying a payload mass of one ton, 1,000 kilograms? Yeah, yeah. SuperBit is a one ton payload. The heaviest thing we flew was Spider in 2015 from Antarctica. And the pin weight there was close to four tons, which is like unbelievably heavy. It's a monster. (laughs) And that's a big balloon. That balloon was 34 million cubic feet
0: but the um telescope was only
1: 80 kilograms uh the telescope itself sort it something like 80 kilograms for the actual yeah it's a carbon fiber mount with a glass mirror made by an italian company called officiana stellari so it's all it's got that the beautiful italian uh feel to it you know like you know ferraris and telescopes both you know look very shiny uh, I don't know. Very stylish carbon fiber, you know. <laughs> Until we get a hold of it and glue heaters and thermometers all over it to to temperature stabilize it, and then it looks sciency again.
0: <laughs> um,
1: but and and but then there's everything else going along with it. There's the com- the computers and the tracking cameras and the science camera and the batteries and the elevation motor and the and and the and the azimuth motors and the roll motors and the and the image stabilizers and the solar panels, and pretty soon you're moving up to around about 800 kilograms for our stuff. And then you need to add the NASA communication box, and you need to add their solar panels and the antennas and the antenna booms and the, and the, and the cage to protect NASA's electronics. And by your all, time you're all done, you're up to, um, you know, a couple of tons. And so it's like, you just keep adding things and it gets heavier. Yes.
0: <laughs> it sounds like we, we would have a, a, you know, a working payload, we could put like, I don't know, one ton to, you know, two tons of, of any kind of payload into the
1: stratosphere. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and stay up there for months yes. on a zero pressure balloon or weeks on a zero pressure balloon over Antarctica or overnight for a conventional flight from mid-latitudes. We fly test flights out of Timmins, Ontario, um, which is a pretty great place because there's very few people outside of Timmins, near Timmins, just like, it's just all surrounded by forest. So we've had a few test flights out of there where just you test something overnight, that's where we verified that SuperVet actually can do what we want it to do. So now it's down to launch from New Zealand.
0: And in March,
1: Well, that was the hope. Now, there's all sorts of stuff making it a bit of a challenge. Um, COVID has made travel to New Zealand dicey. Um, U.S. government vaccine restrictions has have um, may have an impact on who is who from the launch team is willing to go. Um, Yeah, so I don't know if we're going to make it this March. It may be a year March. It's still kind of up in the air, but I'm feeling kind of pessimistic about it today.
0: We'll see. <laughs> Is bit in 2022 and Gigabit in
1: 2023? Uh Well, that was the hope, but it might be might be SuperBit in 2023. Okay. And try and s- slip a test flight for Gigabit in before. Now, the first... The, the, Gigabit won't be flown with a science instrument probably before 2029. It's going to take a while to get this working. It's an incredibly difficult challenge. Um, Where SuperBIT is trying to do a quarter of an arc second, um, or kind of like four times better than a typical good telescope on the ground, Um, Gigabit's trying to do a factor of three even better than that. So the level of image stability required is um, like pretty horrifying in terms of how hard it is. So it's I expect it's going to take a little while to get. For example, the telescope, a lightweight telescope with that of that capacity built is going to be hard. Um. Right. So this is you know one of the highest resolution telescopes ever made. Almost never in the history of telescopes has there been one that needed to have this high quality optics. HST was one of them. Um, Euclid is another one, which will need this level of quality. But, you know, it's not as if there's a lot of experience by anybody making telescopes this good. Because when you're building a telescope on the ground, the atmosphere is gonna limit you to an arc second anyway. So there's a little bit of, you have a little bit more (laughs) wiggle room in being not quite perfect before you would before you'd really care and um
0: it haven't read up on the the impact that superbit and these balloon-borne telescopes will have on the uh the backlog of these imagery requests for
1: for Hubble. yeah so so gigabit which is really where what we're chasing after that's the thing that we're really excited about gigabit should be able to one gigabit flight should kind of be able to collect the same number of photons I mean the same amount of you know light, some combination of pixel picture area and pixel depth and pixel picture resolution, as um, Hubble could do in ten years. So um, yes, it should be able to do a lot toward reducing the backlog of um, imaging requests. Uh, so it's it's really really exciting um of course there's there's two other really exciting satellites coming out in the next little while um there's uh Euclid and Roman, which are two both two space satellites space telescopes um, gigabits imaging speed is kind of not not much different than theirs i mean they're much they're a lot different than each other um euclid it, Gigabit will be faster than Euclid and slower than Roman. But the big difference is that um, Roman and Euclid both observe in the red and the near-infrared wavelengths. And Gigabit focuses on going into the blue and the near-UV. So even even there, there's no other instrument currently operating or planned to operate in Gigabit's bands, which gives it a bit of a niche, which is nice. And it's got a similar similar imaging speed to those two two satellites, kind of in between them. Um, So you could argue that, while the reason that nobody does blue and near UV is because it's not as interesting. It's like, well, we'll find out. (laughs) It looks at different things. It's looking at um, things at moderate, not high redshift. It's looking at things that are hotter, um, than you would with those other instruments, so it's it's kind of different different science goals.
0: Yes. and gigabit is also focusing on imaging
1: the uh, dark matter distribution and. It will large. certainly it'll certainly be amazing at that, but it's going to be a, a much more of a um, flexible instrument than that. We can also go after you know looking at. Um, stellar populations in globular clusters, going after looking for, um, you know, trying to find black holes in, in, in globular clusters, um, trying to go off and look for some of the missing baryons by looking for the glow around um, galaxies from redshifted Lyman Alpha. Um, there's, there's, you know, it, there's a very wide range of other science that Gigabit will be capable of doing beyond uh, the dark matter. Obviously, we're really excited about the dark matter lensing studies. But, you know, it's also true that Euclid and Roman will both be going after that science and we doing a really excellent job of it as well. So.
0: Awesome. Uh, I uh, also wanted to uh, revisit the the cost savings we, we briefly discussed about. Um, is so Superbit was developed for 5 million US dollars?
1: Something like that. Yeah. I mean, depends on how you count it. And, um, you know, some of that was development and learning how to build balloonborne telescopes, and then some of that was okay building superbit. So, but if you kind of think, wrap up the whole thing, maybe five million is not a bad number, um, which is you know, obviously a lot less um, expensive than, you know, a billion-dollar satellite mission or a six-billion-dollar satellite mission or a ten-billion-dollar satellite mission. On the other hand, it produces a lot less data; it flies for a lot shorter. Um, Right, so, you know, Euclid Space Telescope costs a lot more, but it flies for a lot longer. And so, the cost per flight is far, far less, the cost per hour, it's, it's a harder case to make that either one is particularly dominant over the other. The big advantage then is with the, with the, with the balloons is that, is that you can try new things, you can try new instruments, and you can have your graduate students and undergraduate students actually work on building it, which isn't going to happen with a $6 billion mission. So is that extra, we get to be involved. You get to be involved with competitive science. Um, it's, it's not, when you include the total costs, when you include the total mission length, lifetimes, um, balloons and satellites have traditionally been close but the incremental cost for a balloon is far far less and allows you to try new and different things and try and do things that maybe aren't worth a six billion dollar mission but are definitely worth a few million dollars
0: yes and so hubble will cost 6.5 billion from u.s taxpayers calling to- sure
1: i haven't looked at how much Hubble cost lately so i'll, I'll take your word for it um,
0: yeah, it's uh, the, I think that's around 1300 times cheaper with with Superbit.
1: Um, Yeah, that's right. But also Hubble has been flying now since 1990. So (laughs) and it and and you know, and so that's, you have to take that into account. Um, So I'm certainly not feeling I don't I don't believe that the days of satellites are even close to over. In fact, I think that with the decreasing costs of launches we're going to see new and better and more amazing things being done by sa- on satellites as the costs there come down so i think there's there's definitely room for both both technologies depending on what you're trying to do the great thing about the satellite the, the balloons is the ability to um to you know bite off a smaller bite and like you know get less time for a lot less money and do something where you can iterate until it works you can involve graduate students and uh, And undergraduates in the development process. Um, which is those are you know, a lot of the real, the really huge advantages. Uh, so, and obviously, you know, um, camera technology has come a long, 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 long way. So the fact that we can build a gigabit, which is much better than Hubble, 30 years later, well, okay, it's also 30 years later. So that's not not surprising. <laughs> We're not vastly better in you know, dollars, per, dollars per image. Yes, but, but I think it does put things into perspective in
0: that the balloon operations in the stratosphere is game-changing.
1: It um, is because you can try new things. Somebody can say, hey, I've got this new instrument, I've got this new UV spectrometer I wanna put on a, on a satellite. Um, it's not worth a billion dollars to put on a satellite, but a balloon flight, I can answer some really exciting science questions. And then go on to something different next year. And that's kind of the vision I have, is where you can, you can you can do optimize experiments on a much higher cadence once you get this technology working and try different things where it doesn't make sense to build a six billion dollar satellite and fly it for a decade. Um, a six million dollar instrument for um, a couple of months is all you really need. And it's absolutely the right technology there, incomparably the right technology. So that's where the ballooning just is incomparable in that sense, where you can try something innovative and different where a, a whole $6 billion mission doesn't make sense.
0: Uh, you start to wonder um, about all sorts of ways and methods that we could increase the lifespan of these stratospheric balloons. And I um, well, wonder if we could put some kind of propulsion element or or yeah so like 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 you mine the atmosphere or something for extended lifespan
1: yeah that's interesting so one of the big challenge one of the one of the ultimate lifetime limitations right now of one of these missions when if they get the balloons really working really well uh, a likely lifetime limiter will be if the balloon is about to fly over a very large population center and uh the safety people become concerned that the likelihood of it not falling out of the sky while it's over a city isn't high enough (laughs) because you don't want to drop a, you know, two ton payload on somebody's car. Um, And so they did do a bunch of research maybe 15 years ago into whether or not they could put propulsion on a balloon. And in order to like keep it from flying over Sao Paulo or something. Um, right now what they have to do is if it's, if the balloon is heading for Sao Paulo, then they're gonna drop it in the ocean before it gets there. So it doesn't, so uh, they looked into it and it doesn't look like propulsion at those altitudes is really practical because the pressure is so incredibly low that it becomes extremely difficult to change the trajectory of the balloon. It, like the balloon's gonna go with the atmosphere. You know, it's gonna go with the wind pretty much that's what's going to happen. So I'm not super optimistic they're going to make, make that work. They haven't been, I think the early studies made it seem like it was going to be a, more of a challenge than was likely to work. Although that, you know, it, there may be new ideas come along and then it might come back. At this point, I don't think that's being pursued, unfortunately. What's, what's interesting was when you fly one of these superpressure flights over the southern hemisphere, it just goes wherever the wind blows. And the wind—it is, it might, it might be going east, and it might go west, it might go north, it might go south, might sit over the ocean for a week because it's got into some sort of low wind speed region. It might take off going really fast. It's—it's it's really interesting, you know. Look at the, some of the trajectories from these previous flights. And just kind of wanders around in a kind of a fun way. <laughs> Start to wonder about all the coatings that could be applied. To the ex- exterior structure, of the I'm trying to use radiation pressure to drive the, the balloon. Yeah, radiation pressure compared to um, the wind speed, the force of wind is extremely small. So I don't expect that that will become, that would be particularly productive. Yeah. Like on a, on a on a satellite where you're traveling for years. And you have no other forces acting on you except for gravity, then that, that actually can start to become interesting. Um, but I think on a balloon in the wind, it's going to be not super likely in a matter of days that you can get enough trajectory change out of radiation pressure.: they, they, they thought about using wind shear. Hmm. Basically, the idea is that as you, as you go to, as you change elevation, um, the wind speeds can be different. So maybe you might want to try and drop a sail down to a lower altitude where the wind speeds are different and use that to try and change the direct trajectory of the whole whole thing. I don't think I mean, that ends up being very, very heavy and complicated and maybe not work that well. They tried trying to use, it, they looked into using very, very large propellers, but they have to be so large. And all of these would just wreak havoc on our pointing system, like trying to, trying to point precision point the payload while it's being yanked around with one of these systems would be uh, kind of entertaining. So. That being said, um, if you need more than a few months, you probably should be thinking about a satellite. (laughs) That's kind of how it is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you primarily invested in this for for research purposes, or are there any uh you know, com- commercial ambitions? Uh...
1: Well, it's primarily, it's a combination of, of research and pedagogy. It's a really great way of, of getting experience, if you're a grad student or a postdoc or even an undergraduate, on building a whole s- system from design to a mission and not really being locked out of any level of it because the entire thing is... And so I really, really like that. And the students that I've had have been able, you know, come out with a pretty, pretty broad set of knowledge on how to build an entire system every, for, from mechanical engineering to software to science analysis so I, I like that aspect a lot from the educational point of view and then of course the research potential is is enormous I do have there's a few of my former grad students who've um, formed a, a company here in Toronto to um, to produce uh, payloads for other groups um, you know there's, it's taken a long time to really learn how to do this right. And so if you have a research group who has a great idea for an instrument and they're re- say they're really good at detectors or at telescopes or something, but they don't have the expertise for building balloon-borne gondolas and power systems and communication and control and thermal analysis and, and all those things that go into actually making the payload work, um, the idea there is that, hey, you can uh, just go ahead and, uh, contract with these guys and they'll build you your gondolin pointing system and you can focus on what you're good at. And uh, so that seems to be going pretty well. Um, they've, they've got a few customers and quite a bit of interest in it to sort of, again, make this technology more widely available to people. Um, and, and I think that, I think that's a, that's a lot of what I'm excited about going forward is to getting it to where as many people as possible can benefit from the flexibility of these instruments. And also to start, to really start dropping the development time. So we're not spending our entire time learning how to do something and then doing it, but to have that expertise uh, kind of be stable so that we can provide the payload to anybody with a good idea.
0: Curious. Um... You know, could we point some uh, balloons to, to closer in, in the solar system, you know, and, and, and collect
1: the you know, well, yeah,
0: evolution of, of the
1: moon, Mars, and another Absolutely. Body. So I, I, I assume you've looked at um, HST images of the, of the planets. HST can do a pretty good job in imaging Jupiter or, or, or Saturn. And similarly, gigabit could image Jupiter and Saturn. Now, the thing about gigabit is its huge advantage is the extremely large field of view. So, in a sense, imaging Jupiter would be kind of sad to be wasting your instrument. In that sense, um, you can do what's called lucky imaging from the ground, and get a long way toward doing very good imaging of these of the bright planets, even from the ground, um, where you don't need the large field of view. So yes, gigabit would be very good at imaging the planets. You know, We can map out Jupiter weather for however long it's not, under, not below the horizon without ever having to worry about the Earth's weather in the way. Um, it might not be the most cost-effective way of doing it, but you certainly could. It'd be amazing at it. Yes. I
0: had uh, two more questions here. Go. The first one being with superbit and gigabit, could we image um, the atmospheres and surfaces of
1: exoplanets? Um, okay, so this is these telescopes have basically a, a very similar resolution to what HST already has, right? So we're not we're not getting better than HST in resolution. HST is still kind of the benchmark for high resolution imaging. Um, HST has imaged some, you know. Uh, Large extrasolar planets in in like protoplanetary disks and things like this. Um, for that stuff, you generally so far they've wanted to operate in the in the infrared, where you're looking at the the, the glow from the hot object rather than from looking at reflection off sunlight. Or you can you can do both. Um, so gigabit HST not really high enough resolution to like image it as more than a dot in very special conditions, like very large planets. So, um, like, the the idea of a a terrestrial planet imager requires a a very large and extremely good telescope with the ability to really, really strongly block out the light from the the star. And actually, maybe the the hardest part about it is is getting that contrast, because you're looking for a dim little planet next to a really, really bright star. So, being able, it's, you need what's called a chronograph to be able to block out the light from the star in order to see the planet. And that, that's hard. These instruments are not really designed for that. One could do it. There's been discussion of, of balloon borne chronograph telescopes, um, which, is, which is possible. I think that prob- for, for doing a chronograph, actually imaging the surface of the planet, you're probably better off. Um, springing for a satellite, because you get much better control of, of the thermal and vibration and things like that. Um, on the other hand, I'm looking for infrared emission from a hot planet close to the sun, close to the star, that's something you can do from a balloon. In fact, um, we're involved now with a project called Excite, which is basically taking Superbit, replacing the visible near-UV camera with a uh, mid-infrared camera and looking for the emission from hot hot jupiter mass planets orbiting very very close to the central stars and looking um at how the emission changes as it orbits the sun or the, the star and from that learning about the spectrum of their atmosphere and therefore the atmospheric contents so that's something that we that we can do and in fact we're currently involved with doing and that that's a few years out before that those come come forward. So yeah, planet planet work from a balloon is possible to make sure you're kind of doing the right project. Very exciting. Yes. Yeah, it is. Like, there's so much there's so much going on right now in in, in, in science and in technology is opening up these things. It's it's, it's exciting. It's really fun. Yes.
0: And, and the the impact of miniaturization and might improve everything all around Ten, twenty, thirty 10, 20, 30 years from now.
1: Yeah, we we can't make the apertures smaller because just the physics of light. If you want a high resolution, you need a large aperture, a large telescope, a large mirror. But everything else can become increasingly light. And it, you know, even with the balloons, if we really needed to, we could have the rest of the payload be a lot lighter. If we're willing to spend the money and and the effort. So we just haven't because there hasn't been a huge motivation. Like when you're flying a payload, it's like okay, your 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 mass budget is 800 kilograms. There's no real motivation to spend the money to make it 200 kilograms. Yes, yes. <laughs> but you know, when you if we were to put it on a satellite and had a 250 kilogram budget, then we would you, you bet we would immediately think of lots of ways to make it lighter. <laughs> yes.
0: Awesome. Well, really appreciate your time today Arth.
1: yeah it's been fun have a lovely rest of the day and uh, uh, let's, let's explore the universe yeah,
0: yes yes uh, look forward to you know hopefully watching your the, the super bit and gigabit documentary sometimes okay
1: well we probably should start recording recording some footage for it then if that's going to happen so. look forward to watching all right All right. Have a great week. See ya. See ya. Bye.